and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Awesome. Today we're looking at the New Testament book of James. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up at verse 1. But before we get there, let me go ahead and introduce myself again. I am Hunter Trimble. I am Bentry's executive pastor. And you may be wondering, what does an executive pastor actually do? And I've been wondering that myself. And then you may start thinking that if he's a pastor here, why haven't we heard him preach before? And well, here's a quick background on me. I'm Pastor Paul's nephew. I, my parents are Terry and Sheila, who are founding core team members of Bentry, and they're still here today. Hi, Mom. And I joined the church a few months into the first year to help lead the worship band. In fact, this week marks, marks my 12th year of being a member of Bentry. Pretty cool, right? Um, now, as executive pastor, my job is to oversee the organization of our church by directing our staff and leaders in achieving our mission and vision. And my passion is to encourage and empower the people of God to become all he has created them to be as part of the body of Christ. And let me just say this, I've never felt completely qualified in any role that I've had in ministry, not once, but I have felt called. And when it comes to preaching, I've always thought, let's just leave this to the experts, but As I've grown in my faith and as I've come to learn more of scripture and of how God uses people that don't feel like they're ready and don't feel like they measure up, I began to sense his call to try this preaching thing out. So I decided to join the preaching cohort this past spring and there I got to practice preaching and receive some great training and feedback and I'm so thankful to be able to bring this sermon to you today. Ventry believes that it's crucial that we focus on raising up the next generation of disciple makers, church leaders, and preachers who will work to make more and more disciples of Jesus that will carry on the faith for long after we're gone. And even though I might find out this gift of preaching really isn't mine, I trust that God will use it anyway, and I'll keep serving and keep developing the spiritual gifts that I do have. And this is why I love James. James, the younger brother of Jesus, was an average, blue-collar kind of guy. He's the son of Joseph, a carpenter, and Mary, Mary, mother of Jesus. Not wealthy, not highly educated, but God called him to share his faith in Christ Jesus, his own brother, no less, with us. James gives us a clear understanding of what faith in action looks like, of how our faith works. And also to warn us that faith without action is not real faith at all. And while the Apostle Paul gives us an understanding of how the gift of faith was made possible by the blood of Jesus, the book of James gives us some clear measures that we can know if our faith is the real deal. So let's learn a little bit more about what James is saying in his letter. If you're able, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. James 2, starting with verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Let's pray together. Father God, we know that you reveal yourself in every line of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And we ask that you would do that now as we dive into this passage. God, I pray that my words would be your words, that you would work in the lives of each person listening by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that by going deep into Scripture, you would make us more like Jesus to be able to practice true faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's start this morning with a simple question. Here's our question. Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever had a case of FOMO, the fear of missing out? And I'm not just talking about if you were the kid that got picked last in dodgeball in school. I, I was on that team as well. Um, but I'm talking about right now. When have you felt like you don't fit in recently? And maybe ask yourself the opposite question, which cuts a little bit deeper. How have you made others feel left out? And let's be even more direct. Have you ever avoided someone else in the church because of how you perceive them to be? Or have you ever ignored someone who is in your way just to get to the people you really wanted to see? Well, I'm pretty sure we've all felt left out at some point. I know I have. And no matter how good we look or how cool we try to act, no one is immune from the feeling of being left out. And perhaps this feeling for you, is with your own family. Or maybe it's in the church family. Perhaps you are an outcast to the people who should be closest to you. Well, that's exactly what chapter 2 is talking about, the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality or favoritism, or as I like to say, the sin of special treatment. And this is what I'm going to try to help us do this morning, to stand against the sin of special treatment. So in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, we learn how we are not to become what verse 4 calls judges with evil thoughts, meaning that when it comes to putting our faith into action, we shouldn't be partial to others based on the superficial. And for today's message, we're going to focus in on verses 5 through 7, where James is pointing out one of the biggest issues that still divides us today, and that's the issue of wealth. We see the same message in Leviticus 19.15, which says, do not act unjustly to, when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. And also in Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-one, which says, it's not good to show partiality. Now everyone knows that how much money we have or appear to have is a dividing line in our society. It's how the fallen world operates. And this was apparently true in James' time too. And this issue of wealth was present from the start of the early church. As the baggage of a sinful people was brought into the 12 tribes of the early church, it's still a huge stumbling block for the people of God today. So let's go through each line. Let's let scripture interpret scripture and let it lead us to deeper understanding, starting with verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Now this is important. 
James is talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. He's got some church family business to deal with. And we see this addressed throughout the book. But here he's continuing from verse 4 by saying, listen. As if we didn't get the point before, he's saying, let me make this crystal clear for you. And whenever we find the word listen in scripture, what is it asking us to do? Listen, that's right. He's given a specific example of preferential treatment in the early church. And now he's going to tell us why it's sinful, why it goes against God's will for Christ followers. And earlier in the chapter, we learned that people in the synagogue were literally giving the rich and well-dressed the best seats in the house. And this is kind of similar to today's VIP culture, right? Front row, courtside seats, first class accommodations. The world is pretty good at upselling us, isn't it? And could you imagine if we did this here at Bentry? These seats up close, close to me, they're going to cost you. Except we'd probably actually have to charge more for the back row, right? No offense, guys. As James is addressing the fellow believers of his time, he's also speaking to Christ's followers today, and boy, have we taken this sin and ran with it. Continuing with verse 5, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Now, James asks this rhetorical question to remind us of who we are, of who the body of Christ is. The body of Christ, the capital C, worldwide church, is set apart from the world. In 1 Peter 2.9, the apostle Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Furthermore, we learn in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel that God puts the poor and the wealthy on equal footing. In 1 Samuel 2.8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. Now, James doesn't mince words when he speaks of the rich, does he? In fact, he brings up the issue throughout the book. And earlier in James 1, 9 through 11, he says this. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Ouch. This got me thinking, are we living like the rich people that James is referring to? Am I living like the rich person James is referring to? And this leads us to our first point. You can write this down. What the world strikes down, God lifts up. What the world strikes down, God lifts up lifts up. In the New Testament, both James and Peter quote Proverbs 3.34 when they say he mocks those who mock but gives grace to the humble. And here we see this dichotomy between the kingdom of God and the world in which we live in. The world's economy is all about getting ahead, climbing the corporate ladder, reaching the top of financial success and security, no matter what we have to do to get there or who we have to take down along the way. And this simply isn't the case 
and what we can call God's economy of mercy. In our world, the rich and famous are treated like VIPs. We call them celebrities, but what are we really doing? We're creating little idols for ourselves, right? For example, have you ever shared stories of getting to meet a celebrity or some rich or famous person and rubbing elbows with the rich and famous? Some even use name dropping to try to impress others as if it's some sort of goal to meet as many famous people as we can. And we, even when we get around a wealthy or famous person, don't you kind of feel like you're breathing in a sort of rarefied air? And I've got to admit, I've done this. I've gotten super nervous, even around some relatively minor celebrities. And this is a lame example, but one time I got to meet in person. Wait for it. Are you waiting for it? Mickey Mouse. I got to meet Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it was super cool. He shook my hand, gave me a high five, signed my autograph book. It was awesome. But really, really, people do this to tell us about the important people, the VIPs that only the very few get to know. But why do we do this? Why do we do this? My friend Wade Williams calls it exaltation by association. Exaltation by association. When we gush over someone's wealth or status or appearance or possessions, you name it, we are putting them on a pedestal of what we think is praiseworthy. We somehow can feel highly regarded or exalted in ourselves when we can say that we've gotten to know someone that important. And I've even heard people in the church do this with well-known preachers, with biblical scholars and popular worship leaders that they've gotten to meet or hang out with. The special treatment can happen in the church too. Now, is having nice things or being beautiful or well-liked or good at preaching a sin? No. And neither is looking up to someone to learn from their wisdom and experience. In fact, discipleship is all about learning from a spiritual parent, learning from their wisdom to help you grow in your own spiritual maturity. It's really all about the condition of the heart, isn't it? And this longing to exalt others and somehow become exalted in ourselves because of wealth, status, talent, knowledge, title, you name it, it can quickly become idolatry in our hearts. And when we begin to give anyone the special treatment that James is talking about here, we can start to exalt or regard them above our Heavenly Father. And soon idolatry takes over our identity. Remember that anything or anyone we put at a level of importance above our Heavenly Father is idolatry. Let me repeat that. Idolatry is anything or anyone we put at a level of importance above our Heavenly Father. It's a sin. So back into our focus passage from James. Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Uh Uh-oh, he's calling us out here. This verse refers back to verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2 where special treatment is given in the church to the wealthy, well-dressed people. And here the Greek word for dishonored means to disgrace, insult, and despise. And maybe you visited this kind of church, the suit and tie church or the odor-free church. The kind of place where you wouldn't feel welcome wearing a Broncos t-shirt, some jean shorts, we call them jorts, and sandals with socks. Anybody? Anybody? No offense if you're wearing that right now. In fact, I think that is the Colorado look. You're totally welcome here at Ventry. 
Um, But beyond wealth and fancy clothes, the heart of this passage is the same that is found throughout the book of James, which is our next point. Our faith is proven by how we treat each other. Our faith is proven by how we treat each other. Jesus gives this command to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Loving one another is a mark of a true disciple. And when it comes to loving our enemies, Jesus makes this point clear to us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. So what does this look like today? If Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, how can we possibly do that if we don't even love the people in the church that are just a little bit different than us? Today, our society is more divided than ever. We like to join together in little groups with only the people just like us. And I think of the old adage, us for and no more. And some even try to put a positive spin on it, saying, I'll only hang out with the kind of people that build me up. You can see this in the church, when a small group of people that share every little thing in common decides to go rogue and split from the rest of the church. Or when a person decides to leave a church because their friend group started going to another church and you just got to stay with your friend group, right? Church, we've got to stop doing this. We were made to fit together with people that are different from us, from different backgrounds, with different personalities and stories, and from different tax brackets. Now, don't get me wrong. If the church is not preaching the full truth and grace of the Bible and does not believe and preach the sacrifice of Jesus, God's only Son, whose blood was shed on the cross to atone for our sins, you should leave that church. You should run from that church. Run from false teaching. Now, in our society, we've segmented ourselves so much so that now we have an infinite number of identity groups that we can be a part of. The world wants to celebrate and even elevate every little thing that makes us different and unique. But in doing so, We forget who made us in the first place. And we can even begin to cling to and exalt these individual identity groups. Listen, the body of Christ is the most diverse group of people in the world. Followers of Christ come in all colors. They live in every part of the globe. They speak different languages. They come from different cultures. They like different music. They have different abilities and levels of wealth. But what unites us all is the Holy Spirit that lives in the heart of every true believer. True Christ followers have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And along with those that belong to the body of Christ, it's important for us to remember this next point. Everyone you meet is an image bearer of the Creator. Everyone you meet is an image bearer of the Creator. We are made in His image. 
Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And there's not a person in the church or outside the church that God did not make in his image. From the beggar on the street to the multi-billionaire, each one created in the image of the creator. So back to James chapter 2, verse 6. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So who are the rich that James is referring to? Well, in that culture, the rich were often the rulers and authorities, and many would exhibit their power over people with acts of oppression. Sounds kind of like today, right? Not only do we have celebrities, but we have an elite class of powerful billionaires and wealthy politicians who don't always agree with the values and morals of the Christian life found in Scripture. And on a related note, when it comes to being oppressed or persecuted, we've been incredibly, incredibly blessed, haven't we? We're, we're much better off than our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are right now, today, being put to death for their faith in Christ. And although we have not faced tremendous persecution here in the U.S., we are living in unprecedented times in our nation, right? There could be a day very soon where the Christian church in America loses its freedoms and protections from the government. And it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to think of a day where gatherings like this one, where the true gospel is preached and taught, could lead to criminal prosecution. Now, this is not to alarm you. Well, maybe to alarm you, but not to worry you. Remember what Jesus tells us in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you were not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The body of Christ should expect persecution if it's truly living as the body of Christ. The gospel message is inherently offensive. And as Christ followers, we should know why it's offensive and why we should expect persecution. It's offensive because we're the offenders, you and I. The gospel calls out our sin. It calls out our disobedience and our rebellion. But the truth is that there is nothing you can do in your own effort to make yourself right in God's sight. You can't be good enough, can't be rich enough, you can't be poor enough for that matter, to earn salvation or to get to heaven. The gospel is also seen as offensive because it tells us that a price must be paid for our sin. And as Pastor Jeff says, what's the price? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The price of my sin My disobedience, my preferential treatment of others required a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice. The price for sin is death and an eternal separation from God in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God made a way for us to be reconciled with him through the atoning work of his only son, Jesus, on the cross, his death and resurrection. The Apostle Peter tells us that the sacrifice was the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished or spotless lamb. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is offensive to our sin, yes, 
But God gives us the faith to believe in Christ crucified. And as we put that faith in Jesus, all our sins, past, present, and future, are washed away. And we are reconciled to God. Praise God. Okay, let's get back to James 2, verse 6. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So the Greek word for blaspheme here means to vilify. And the Greek word for good here is kelon, which means beautiful, chiefly good, valuable, and virtuous. So what is this good name that James is referring to, this beautiful, valuable, virtuous name? The good name that defines a follower of Christ is the name of Jesus Christ himself. And here is why taking on the name of Christ is so important. Christ Jesus has the real power. Christ Jesus has the real power. In Philippians 2, 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And let's read this next part together. Let's say it like we believe it. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want to be impressed, look to Jesus. You want to know perfect humility? Look to Jesus. Do you want to see true nobility and perfect beauty? Look to Jesus. Do you want to be able to name drop the name that is above all names? Tell people about Jesus. Tell people who Jesus is to you. If you put your faith in Christ, you are a son or daughter, of the King of Kings. As the book of Galatians says, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Jesus has the real power. Amen? Amen. And this is the name invoked over the people of God, as Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. The same God that formed us and made us in his image created us for his glory. We aren't meant to glorify the rich, the poor, or any other person, place, or thing. We are made to bring glory to God alone. The Apostle Paul also reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 through 31. And listen for how it connects directly with what James is telling us. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All right. So here in verse 31, the Apostle Paul is quoting the prophet Jeremiah. 
And I love the message paraphrase of this verse, which says, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Or in the hunter paraphrase, stop tooting your own horn. And with that, we come to our final point. We don't strike others down, we point them to Jesus. We don't strike others down, we point them to Jesus. So what is James pointing to? What are we supposed to do with this message? Well, it's found throughout the book of James where he shows us what real faith looks like. In James 2.26 he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what are the works or actions that we should do in response to the sin of special treatment? Well, to summarize what we've looked at this morning, we should first remember that everyone we meet is an image bearer of God. Christian or not, we don't look down on others. Second, we should glorify Christ alone, recognizing his unmatched power. Don't make idols out of people, money, or possessions. And finally, we should love those that are different from us in the church and outside of the church, the poor, the rich, and anyone in between. We do this by humbling ourselves as we serve others. As Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, con- or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. We are to serve others like Jesus serves us with humility and grace and mercy. This is what God is calling us to do in response to his great love for us, to love those that are different from us. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that we would practice our faith by doing what your word says here in James. I pray that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, our church body as well, by honoring each other and by caring for the widow and the orphan. God, help us not give in to the temptation of elevating anyone or anything over you in our hearts. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us of the sin of special treatment. Show us where we're doing this and help us to repent, to turn away from it, to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. God, we want to bring you glory. Bring glory to your name, the name above all names. Help us to lead others to Jesus by telling them the gospel and by showing them true works of faith. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.